Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 58. Gratitude hurled your way for deciding to click on that little triangle that points to the right for a go-round of this podcast that thrives on all things cinematic, past, present, and future. Regardless of whether this is your first time tuning in or your 58th, you're taking the time out of your day, so thank you. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Okay, story time. This past fall, around October of 2021, there we were. One of my three senior English classes and I, in the swimming pool of joy and knowledge known as my classroom, when it was time to start the unit on King Arthur. As I do every year to launch the unit, I play a brief clip from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, specifically the Black Knight with his flesh wound scene. There was a time back in the aughts when there would have been some chuckles and maybe even an offering of a favorite quote from another scene from this crowning cherry on the cheesecake that is the irreplaceable legend of Monty Python. But in 2021, crickets. Tumbleweed rolling from one side of the classroom to the other. And not because they didn't find it funny, though it's true they didn't. No, it was because they had never heard of Monty Python. Life of Brian, meaning of life. Hey, they had no idea. Say what? I know, I know. Later that day was senior class number two. Same course, same grade, same clip. Couple of smiles, maybe one small chuckle. Though, come to think of it, it might have been a small sneeze. But still, no recognition. And then came the third class. Two kids knew Monty Python. Two. And when I asked what they thought of them, the answer they gave was... Meh. Then, just now, July 2022, I was in Scotland to bring my son to see a few universities he's considering. And we were in Starling, and there in Starling is this castle by the name of Dune, that's D-O-U-N-E. And we walked in and around Dune Castle, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail was filmed at Dune Castle. So I took a lot of photos at Dune Castle, and voila, episode 58. So, rather than accept that some people, if offered the chance to partake in a classic 47-year-old comedy from 1975, that they might respond with a resounding No! Let's us Python fans respond in kind with the words of actress Lauren Bacall, it's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. So what on God's green earth is a Monty Python? It's the name of a British comedy troupe of six comedians. In alphabetical order, they are Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones, and Michael Palin. Five Brits, one American. Cleese and Chapman met as students at Cambridge, and Idle met them there when he enrolled one year later. All three belonged to the Footlights Theatrical Society. As for Terry Jones and Michael Palin, they met each other while at Oxford, performing with the Oxford Review. After Jones and Palin graduated, they began to write for the likes of Billy Cotton, Ken Dodd, and Roy Hudd's BBC shows. Meanwhile, Cleese immersed himself in the Footlights Review as both a writer and performer. He said, quote, I went to the Cambridge Guildhall where each society had a stall, and went up to the Footlights stall where I was asked if I could sing or dance. I said no, as I wasn't allowed to sing at school because I was so bad, and if there is anything worse than my singing, it's my dancing. I was asked, well, what do you do? To which I replied, I make people laugh, end quote. This 1963 review was a smash hit in Edinburgh Fringe in Scotland, and then went global, traveling through New Zealand, the West End in London, and Broadway in New York. Terry Gilliam, an American animator, met Cleese when Cleese was in New York, performing on and off-Broadway. As the only American, Terry Gilliam was always the odd one out of the group, having been born in Minnesota before growing up in L.A. 
He graduated in political science, but gravitated towards the UK once the counterculture movement of the 60s began to get ugly in the States. He said, quote, I was terrified that I was going to be a full-time bomb-throwing terrorist if I stayed in the U.S., because it was the start of really bad times in America. Every night I'd be hauled over by the cops who thought I was a long-haired drug addict, and I got more and more angry, end quote. Once in Britain, he got a job in a kid's TV show called Do Not Adjust Your Set, where he met Idol, Palin, and Jones. After the success of Do Not Adjust Your Set, ITV offered Gilliam, Idol, Palin, and Jones their own late-night adult comedy series. At the same time, the BBC offered Cleese and Chapman a show after they scored with David Frost's satirical show, The Frost Report, especially the episode How to Irritate People, which Michael Palin also worked on. But Cleese was reluctant to do just a two-man show with Chapman, partly because of Chapman's apparently difficult and erratic personality. So Cleese invited Palin to join them. With no ITV studio immediately available for the late-night adult comedy series that Palin and Gilliam and Idol and Jones were offered, Palin agreed, and suggested he bring his colleagues with him. Idol went on to suggest that they have Gilliam provide animations for the series. All that was left was a name. Flying Circus was automatic, because the BBC had printed that name on their schedules and would not change it. Palin's idea was Gwen Dibley's Flying Circus. Gwen Dibley was a woman he'd read about in the newspaper. He thought it would be funny if she found out that she had her own TV show. There are different accounts as to where the eventual name Monty Python came from. One story is that Eric Idle came up with it, that Monty was a tribute to Bernard Law Montgomery, a British Army officer who was field marshal one of the most outstanding commanders in World War II. And the Python? The story goes that they wanted, quote, a slippery-sounding surname, end quote. The BBC thought it was ridiculous, but in the end agreed to it after the group threatened to change the name every week. Monty Python's Flying Circus became a global phenomenon, pushing boundaries and defying conventional comedy throughout its five-year run from 1969 to 1974. They played stadiums, they released albums, they went on to break even more taboos in the 70s and early 80s as they moved from TV to film. And that brings us to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Co-directed by Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, Monty Python and the Holy Grail premiered in Los Angeles, California in March of 1975, in London on April 9th, and nationwide in the UK on May 25th. It became the top-grossing British film in the US that year, and in a surprisingly brisk runtime of an hour and a half, remains to this day one of the most quotable comedies ever made. And that said, for this episode, there'll be a special format that deviates from what we normally do. We're going to make like Python and defiantly break the chains of convention. First, you'll be taken through the film, not completely, but somewhat from start to maybe a third of the way through, with commentary along the way. So if you haven't seen this film, or haven't seen it in a while and want no spoilers... Please proceed with the knowledge that this particular episode will be chock full of them. So, spoiler alert, now. Then grab those coconut shells from a passing swallow and clap them together as we gallop on foot to the behind-the-scenes fun facts about the film and the blokes involved. And then, to the accompaniment of chanting monks hitting themselves with wooden boards, enjoy a special segment updating you on the four surviving Python members and their lives and careers in the years since. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the trivia segment, as always, involving all of you. So, bring out your dead, slap a fake nose on an accused witch, sit back and relax, 
as we rewind to 1975, the year that the Monty Python gang first stormed the big screen. As our story begins, opening credits begin rolling over a black screen. Foreboding and brooding music plays, and let me tell you, the text and images that you see throughout, they are the gift that keeps on giving. It's like being shot out of a cannon at Disneyland. The jokes come fast and furious. I won't give away what the gags are in the credits, but once they do end, the tone is set. This is complete and total lunacy. Outlandish humor with no rhyme or reason, just randomness that's droll, sarcastic, and witty as hell. After a couple of different music genres, among other things, are represented, a title card grandly announces England, 932 AD. We dissolve into the sight of a barren field covered in layers of fog. From a distance, we hear the sounds of galloping. The sound gets progressively louder as two figures emerge from the fog. King Arthur, played by Graham Chapman, and his squire, Patsy, played by Terry Gilliam. Any sign of a horse is non-existent, as Patsy is simply clapping coconut shells together as the two of them make their way over the crest of a hill. Okay, and let me tell you right now that if you were to visit Dune Castle in Stirling, Scotland, they friggin' sell coconut shells in the gift shop as a nod to this film. Swear in my life, I saw them myself. I was tempted to pick up a pair, but I figured they'd be a bitch to pack, and let's face it, what the hell would I do with them anyway? Besides having an accessory to the best damn Halloween costume ever, at least in the eyes of those who get the reference. So that rules out my seniors. <laughs> Love you guys, not that you're listening and hearing this, but hats off. Anywho, Arthur and Patsy stop their galloping to gaze upon the site of a castle, one of many shots of Dune. They get closer to it, where a god on the rooftop calls out, Who goes there? Without missing a beat, Arthur replies, It is I, Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon of the cult of Camelot, king of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England. And this is my trusty servant, Patsy. We have ridden the length and breadth of the land in search of knights who will join me in my court at Camelot. To which the dismissive god responds, Pull the other one. What, ridden on a horse? You're using coconuts. You've got two shells of coconuts and you're banging them together. Then a back and forth ensues where there's an argument about whether or not a five-ounce bird could carry a one-pound coconut. Don't ask, just watch. And you too can decide for yourself if you believe the coconuts migrate. Cut to a village ravaged by the plague. Dead bodies are getting piled into wheelbarrows. The man pushing the cart along, played by Eric Idle, is calling to anyone who will listen, Bring out your dead! One of the residents of the village, played by John Cleese, comes out into the street and approaches the cart with a guy slung over his shoulder. But the guy's not dead, you see. He feels fine, he wants to go for a walk, and he doesn't want to go into the cart. He feels happy, but not for long. Eric Idle strikes him on the head, he's dead, and problem solved. Then Arthur and Patsy gallop past on foot with their coconut shells, and Idle and Cleese are right on the money when they figure out that Arthur is a king by virtue of the fact that he's got, if you'll pardon the language, no shit all over him. As Arthur and Patsy continue on with their quest to find worthy and noble knights, they next come upon a peasant walking ahead of them. Arthur greets the peasant with, Old woman! but it's actually 37-year-old Dennis, played by Michael Palin, who has no interest in a king because, as he puts it, he's against dictatorships. He informs Arthur and Patsy that he lives in an anarcho-syndicalist commune. Arthur asserts his authority by telling Dennis how the Lady of the Lake, the mystical being who lives underwater, granted him the sword Excalibur, and that is how he is rightfully king. But Dennis calls bullshit and says, 
You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tot threw a sword at you. Then comes the scene in question, the one that I play from YouTube as an audiovisual aid when introducing the King Arthur unit to my seniors. Arthur and Patsy continue on their merry way when they witness a fight between two men in the forest. The knight in black, played by John Cleese, defeats his enemy bloodily. Arthur's impressed and invites this anonymous knight to join him in his court at Camelot. But the knight just stares at him silently. Arthur and Patsy are properly confused, and Arthur grandly expresses his regret that the knight is apparently not interested. As they're about to make their departure, the knight speaks. None shall pass, and he forbids Arthur to cross the bridge in front of him. What to do besides have a sword fight themselves? After several choice insults, lost limbs, a flesh wound, and an impressive display by the knight of resilience and perseverance, Arthur and Patsy ride off despite the knight's continued heckling. Okay, one thing to tell you about this scene. John Cleese's daughter was on set one of the days they were filming it. She apparently turned to her mother and said, Daddy doesn't like that man, does he? The next scene is the last one I'll mention so that you can revisit this comic gem of a film and enjoy the humor coming from the professionals. Monks are chanting in Latin as a witch hunt is underway. A crazy mob drags an accused witch, played by Connie Booth, to Bedivere, played by Terry Jones. They've slapped a fake nose on her to make her look more witchy, and Bedivere hears how one of the crowd, John Cleese, claims to have been turned into a newt by this lowly creature. Bedivere responds with some questionable science-based methods of telling whether she is a witch that completely ranks in the superstitions and mindsets of the witchcraft hysteria from the Dark Ages. He says that witches burn because they're made of wood. Wood floats in water, and he tests the crowd by asking, what else floats in water? After they guess bread, apples, very small rocks, cider, great gravy, mud, cherries, and churches, Arthur, who's been watching from a distance, calls out the correct answer. A duck. If she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood, and therefore a witch. They grab a conveniently located duck, put it on one scale and the accused on the other, and lo, she's carried off to be burned. Arthur is duly impressed, identifies himself, Bedivere bows to him, and the first seat of the round table is filled. Now, during this whole scene, keep your eyes on Eric Idle. Look closely, and you can see him biting the blade of the scythe he's holding to keep himself from laughing and ruining the take. So let's say we now pivot towards the behind-the-scenes fun facts. Yes! Number five. The film was originally going to take place in both medieval and modern London. Arthur would be on the quest for the Holy Grail in both settings. The original idea was for him to find the Holy Grail at the famous Harrods department store at the Holy Grail counter. Co-directors Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones went the way of 932 AD for the whole film instead, in part because Jones was interested in the time period, even going on afterwards to write a few books on it. Number four. The sight gag of the clapping coconut shells replacing actual horses came as a result of a depleted budget. They simply could not afford to use real horses. The idea of the coconut shells was inspired by the old BBC radio technique of using shells as sound effects for galloping horses. Number three. Remember how I mentioned Dune Castle in Scotland? Two weeks before production began, the National Trust for Scotland for Places of Historic Interest or Natural Beauty, commonly known as the National Trust for Scotland, it's a Scottish conservation organization, 
They banned the group from shooting in any national historic sites because, according to Gilliam, quote, we wouldn't respect the dignity of the fabric of the building, where the most horrible torches, disemboweling, had gone out, end quote. They managed in a frantic mad rush to find two privately owned castles to use. Castle Arg is actually Castle Staka, located on the west coast of Scotland. The rest of the castles in the film are all Dune Castle, shot from different angles. It's in Starlink, about 30 miles north of Glasgow. Number two. The British film industry, they weren't exactly tripping over themselves and each other to fund the film, despite the success of the TV comedy show. So Tony Stratton-Smith, who was the head of the record label Charisma Records, which released Monty Python's early comedy albums, asked the rock bands Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and Genesis to invest £20,000 each in the film's budget. All three obliged, along with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. The film was made at a time in England when the rich were paying astronomically high taxes, so the rock bands allegedly saw investing in it as a way of creating tax losses to salvage their earnings. George Harrison of the Beatles would pony up a significant amount for their follow-up film, Life of Brian. And number one. Athazami at the end of the movie was actually about 175 students from the nearby University of Stirling. According to a casting call that the production sent to the school, each student got free transportation and food, as well as two pounds, and, quote, an abundance of crazy antics, end quote, for one day's work. Budget limits prevented the filming of a planned epic battle sequence at the end, resulting in the abrupt conclusion. And surprise! Here's a bonus fun fact. When God appears in the sky and gives Arthur his mission to find the Holy Grail, what you're looking at is a photograph of the famous 19th century English cricket player W.G. Grace. And now it's time for the segment of this episode where I promised you updates on the company of comedians who made up Monty Python. After the Monty Python television series ended in 1974, Michael Palin and Terry Jones worked on a TV comedy series called Ripping Yarns, which lasted for three years. In 1980, Palin co-wrote and acted in Time Bandits with Terry Gilliam. Four years later, Palin and Gilliam reunited for the film Brazil. And in 1988, Palin won the BAFTA Award for Best Supporting Actor for the comedy film A Fish Called Wanda, which also stars John Cleese. If that weren't enough, Palin also was awarded the CBE, let me see if I get this right, the Commander of the Order of the British Empire. That was in the 2000 Queen's Millennium Honors List for his services to television drama and travel documentaries. He documents his travels on his website, Palin's Travels. He was awarded the Knight Commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George in the 2019 Queen's New Year's Honors List for his services to travel, culture, and geography. As for Terry Gilliam, he directed and scored an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay for the 1985 film Brazil. He also directed and wrote the screenplay for 2009's The Imaginarium of Dr. Panassas, which was Heath Ledger's last film. Gilliam's other directing credits include 1991's The Fisher King with Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams, 1995's Twelve Monkeys with Brad Pitt, and 1998's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Johnny Depp. Terry Jones wrote the screenplay for 1986's Labyrinth with David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly, and he also got a writing credit for his idea for 1996's Fierce Creatures, which reunites the cast of A Fish Called Wanda, John Cleese and Michael Palin. And in 2004, Terry Jones was nominated for an Emmy for writing an episode of the documentary series Medieval Lives, which he also hosted. 
In addition to acting in A Fish Called Wanda and Fierce Creatures, John Cleese got an Oscar nomination for writing the screenplay for A Fish Called Wanda. He won an Emmy for a guest appearance on the American sitcom Cheers, and two additional nominations for his guest appearances on the comedies Third Rock from the Sun and Will and Grace. He also won himself a new generation of fans as both the voice of King Harold in Shrek 2, 3, and 4, and as the phantom of nearly headless Nick in the first two Harry Potter films. After accumulating five Grammy nominations for comedy recordings, Eric Idle finally won on his sixth nomination for Best Musical Show Album for the Broadway musical comedy version of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, called Spamalot. He voiced the recurring role of Declan Desmond in The Simpsons, and appeared semi-regularly in the 1990s sitcom Suddenly Susan, starring Brooke Shields. He also did voice work for some Disney shorts, and provided the voice of Merlin in Shrek 3. Graham Chapman starred as Yellowbeard in the 1983 film of the same name, along with Peter Boyle, Marty Feldman, and Cheech and Chong. He made a few uncredited appearances on Saturday Night Live in the early 80s, and was billed as The Teacher in the music video for Iron Maiden's Can I Play With Madness in 1988, before passing away of tonsil and spinal cancer in October of 1989, just one day before the 20th anniversary of Monty Python. Terry Jones called it, quote, the worst case of potty pooping I'd ever seen, end quote. Out of respect for Chapman's family, the five surviving Monty Python members decided not to attend his funeral, knowing that the British press would probably turn it into a media circus. They held their own memorial service a few months later instead. But they did send a wreath in the shape of the python foot to the funeral, along with the message, quote, two gram from the other pythons with all our love. P.S. Stop us if we're getting too silly, end quote. For 30 years, Chapman was identified as the dead one of the Monty Python troupe, but that dubious distinction was erased in January of 2020 when Terry Jones passed away. And with that, it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So according to the watery tat who threw Excalibur at Arthur to make him king, also known as the Lady of the Lake, the poll question for this episode, number 58, was Would you rather A. Smell of elderberries B. Have a hamster as your mother C. Suffer just a small flesh wound or D. Have both biscuits and tea right before committing murder On Instagram, McEwen Life goes for the odor of elderberries and says that she'll also go for a large wooden badger Indeed Over on Twitter, 20% of the votes went in the same direction You gotta wonder, do elderberries really smell that bad? 20% fancy a snack of both biscuits and tea, but the flesh wound takes it with 60% of the votes. But on the Silver Screeners Facebook group page, smelling of elderberries came out on top with 43% of the 23 votes. 39% go for the biscuits and tea, and 17% will take the flesh wound. That means two things. First, smelling of elderberries seems to be the cup of cappuccino that the majority of you all go for. And second, no one wants a hamster for a mother. Zero percent of the votes across all the socials. Go figure. <laughs> but as always, a big thank you to everyone who voted. This is the steam that keeps this show chugging along. And keep your eyes open to my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974. Or if you prefer, you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. 
In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. You're all invited to take a shot at it at any time. I do want to say that I like to err on the side of caution, so I don't announce both first and last names, just in case that would make anyone uncomfortable. So I only announce first name and last initial, but if you tell me otherwise, full names it is. You'll get your shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent your way, along with a personalized greeting. And as I say every time, don't worry about timing. It does not matter what episode you're listening to. However far back or however recent, episode 5, episode 45, it does not matter. Answer any trivia question at any time. You'll get the meme and the shout-out. And, if like 37-year-old Dennis, who is not old, and his good lady... If, like them, you create things like an anarcho-syndicalist commune and don't vote for Arthur for King, or maybe you make music or podcasts or books or YouTube channels, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out as well. So, last time, we visited Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory and reveled in the confectionery delights. That film opens up with the song The Candyman, which became a hit single for Sammy Davis Jr. And, speaking of comedies that broke taboos, Davis guested on What Envelope Pushing TV sitcom, co-starring Gene Stapleton as Edith Bunker, who had declined the Mrs. TV role to do this show's pilot. And the answer is All in the Family. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to these fine people. The one and only Mary C., who added that Sammy Davis Jr. hated the Candyman. 100% Mary. It's ironic that it's his only number one hit, isn't it? The legend that is Liz M., my sister-in-law and fellow outlaw. Liz said that only I could connect Willy Wonka and all in the family, which I think was a compliment. Regardless, Liz, either way, let's do a round of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon next time we see each other. My co-host of the local cable show Real Life, that's I-E-E-L, Michael W. We haven't done an episode since the Oscars back in the spring, Mike, but we'll get back on it. And Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho, who just released his latest episode on the horror movie Bloody Hell, and the Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez series Only Murders in the Building on Hulu. And Chris also includes Get Out of My Chair, Meathead. So thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else listening, there is no time like the present. Join the trivia. It's a great time. And you can begin with this episode's question. Monty Python mainstay Eric Idle appears in several scenes of what 1985 National Lampoon comedy starring Chevy Chase as the clumsy, accident-prone Clack W. Griswold. Idol is first seen riding his bicycle in London just as Clack runs into him, then later in Rome when he smashes a revolving glass door in his face. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode, let me know. Or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, Frank Mendoza1974 on Instagram, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 58 to a royal Arthurian conclusion. As always, thank you to everyone who's listening, has ever listened, or who will in the future be listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please do not hesitate to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the accused witch being placed in a scale as a test to see if she weighs the same as bread 
apples, very small rocks, cider, great gravy, cherries, mud, churches, and a duck. <laughs>